0: This is the Citizen of Heaven Podcast. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and I am your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. I bring you this message of hope today from Pensacola, Florida. This is report number nine, dated June 4th in the year of our Lord 2019. I bid God's grace and peace to all my fellow sojourners here in this earthly plane. I remain sound in body, alert in mind, and energized in spirit. I'm pleased to bring you this report of my recent labors in the Lord. Here's a synopsis. I've been preaching about being perfect, how it's possible, and how it's impossible, and how that isn't a contradiction. I've been reading The Sushi Economy by Sasha Isenberg. Japanese wholesalers are willing to spend $100,000 for a single fish, and that's not even the crazy part of this story. I've been hearing Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. may have been guilty of numerous reprehensible behaviors. I don't approve, but that certainly doesn't mean he isn't still a hero of mine. I've been playing Reworld, in which earthlings abandon an uninhabitable planet to start over somewhere new. It's a great idea, probably because God thought of it first. Are you ready? Here we go. This is what I've been preaching. I'm going to violate the law of context here today on the podcast, which is something that I try very hard not to do. The best way to define a word in a context is to look at the way that word is used and the way other words are used to determine in that immediate context what that meaning actually is. The easiest way, of course, is to look for the ways that that very word is used. And so you would figure that if in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 12, the word perfect is used and then it's used again in verse 16, just a couple of sentences later, it ought to mean the same thing. But clearly it does not. Because Paul says specifically that he is not perfect in verse 12. And then we find out in verse number 16 that other people are perfect and he appears to include himself in that list. Read with me in Philippians chapter 3, and look at what Paul has to say on this subject. Not that I have already obtained it, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was also laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude, And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. I said verse 16. It's in verse 15, obviously. The word perfect there. But which one is it? Is it that he is perfect and that we can be perfect also? Or is it that he has not yet become perfect? And surely if the Apostle Paul hasn't become perfect, then none of us can. Well, it's both, actually. The word perfect actually means both things. And it's important for us to understand this there is a difference between sinless perfection and our perfect calling. The striving for excellence in this life is 100% compatible with our own failures and infallibilities and imperfections. First John chapter 1 tells us that specifically. Chapter, uh, chapter 1 verse 5 uh, through the end of the chapter there verse 10 talks about how we are walking in the light. Like God uh, is light and like Jesus is in the light. And while we walk in the light, we have fellowship in the text says the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. Well how do we get sin when walking when we're walking in the light? Well clearly walking in the light, choosing life of God, choosing life of fellowship with God with the apostles that John enjoins upon us here in his epistle. This is compatible with sin. He goes on to say that the one who loves God does not sin. Well clearly we commit sins from time to time. We all fall short of the word of God from time to time. It doesn't matter how long we've been a Christian or how hard we're trying. We do fall short from time to time. John's point in 1 John is if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge that no matter who we are, no matter how long we've been serving, whether we're an apostle like John or like Paul, or whether we're just a novice or anywhere in between, if we acknowledge that we need the Lord, that we need a Savior, and that we will always need a Savior, that's what confessing sin means in that context then that blood is there for us. We have an advocate. We have propitiation for our sins. And for the sins of the whole world, he goes on to say in chapter 2, a couple of verses there, if anyone sins, we have an advocate. We do have recourse. We have safety. Because we are trusting in the grace of Jesus Christ that's available to us because we have come to him in trusting and obedient faith. We have chosen a path of perfection. We have chosen a path that Jesus himself walked. We're striving toward his image. We're striving to be like him, striving to be like him in every aspect of our character. First Peter chapter 2 talks about that, at the end of the chapter there. But why will we never get there? Well, I hope it's going to be okay because we aren't going to get there. We're never going to get there. Paul hadn't got there himself. And we won't get there either. And I'm here to tell you that that's okay. I'm not excusing my sin or your sin or anybody's sin. But I am emphasizing that if you are living your life in faith, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, and from time to time you fall short of God's expectations of your own expectations of yourself, you serve a merciful, loving, forgiving God who can bear with you and help you through these difficult times and allow you to learn from your mistakes It will not destroy you or cast you into hell simply because you fell short in one particular area or one particular pattern of areas. God can and will save sinful people. I am never going to be perfect in my faith or my moral excellence or my knowledge or my perseverance or my godliness or my brotherly kindness or my love, these attributes that we sometimes call the Christian graces that Peter talks about in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5, 6, and 7. I'm never gonna be perfect in any of those things. That's not a rationalization. I'm not making excuses for myself any more than you are when you say the same thing. What we are saying is this, that we have chosen a path. We've chosen a lifestyle, and we are proceeding down that lifestyle. And if we are engaging in these things and allowing God to build them in us and help us to become more and more like Jesus, more and more like this idealized character that's given to us in Second Peter 1 and other places also, if we will do that, then we have fellowship with God, then this process is working in us. Hopefully we'll get better and better as time progresses. And we find ourselves more and more like Jesus every single day, every single year. And I want to emphasize this because this is important. There is this tendency among people who are just determined not to de-emphasize works. And the works that we do in God are important. The works that we do in Jesus Christ are important, absolutely. Baptism and, and all the rest of it. Everything that God commands us to do is important. That ought to go without saying. But we'll say it anyway. When we emphasize this pattern of works, this pattern of obedience, it's very easy for us to fall into this trap of thinking that if we don't get it right, if we don't get it perfect, then none of it matters. And that's just not true. The prayers that we offer are never going to be perfect. That's why we're told in Romans chapter 8 that our prayers don't have to be perfect. Uh, In the same way, verse number 26, The Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit is there for us, ministering for us, helping us in our weakness. We're never going to pray properly. We're never going to evangelize properly. We're never going to study properly. We're never going to have perfect anything in our life from love on down. That's okay, because we have chosen to become the what Paul calls these ones who have been made perfect, these ones who are striving toward the excellence of Jesus Christ. We haven't gotten there yet, but we've chosen the right path. And because we've chosen to try to become perfect, we can have confidence that God's going to work his way in us, and eventually in heaven, that perfection is going to be realized in us, because God will fill in all the blanks that we were incapable of filling in in this life. Being made fully perfect in heaven. That's something to absolutely look forward to. Anyway, that's what I've been preaching. This is what I've been reading. One of my objectives this year is to improve my reading habits. And one of the things that I do to improve my reading habits, occasionally, is go over to the local used bookstore and browse the shelves. And if I see something that touches on a subject that interests me and it's not too expensive, you know, Hal Hammond's famous tightwad here again, then maybe I'll pick it up. And that's how I ran across The Sushi Economy, which is a book written by a man named uh, Sasha Isenberg. And it tells the story of how... Fishermen in Nova Scotia and retailers in Tokyo and sushi chefs in Austin and and all these different people in all kinds of different parts of the world play a part in the sushi economy, helping everything come together, everybody playing their part. And perhaps, at least the way he describes it, in a greater way than in other similar economies, each part investing completely in the whole. Not so much for their own benefit, for their own sake, but also in pursuit of something larger than themselves. This is especially seen uh, toward the end when he tells the story about how in the Tokyo sushi markets and where they're selling the raw fish, it's not uncommon at all because bluefin tuna are are a lot harder to come by in the waters of Japan in the winter. It's not uncommon at all for a wholesaler to pay as much as $100,000 for a single fish. For one, I mean, granted, it's a big fish, but still, a hundred thousand dollars. That works out to around one hundred fifty dollars a pound, which is a lot more than I'm prepared to pay for tuna or anything else, as far as that goes. And I bet you're in the same boat as I am. No pun intended. Well, why is it that they're able to do that, and how can you have an economy that can possibly sustain itself in, in America if a wholesaler was paying one hundred fifty dollars a pound for? for beef or chicken or or whatever, that would be passed down immediately to the consumer. You'd see it in the grocery stores. You'd see it in the restaurants. Uh, They would price themselves out of oblivion. It would be uh, impossible to sustain. But in fact, in the winter months, in the high-end Tokyo sushi bars where they're buying this extraordinarily expensive tuna, prices really don't go up very much because their own prices didn't go up very much the wholesalers sold at a loss the real story behind this in the sushi economy is not that wholesalers are willing to pay a hundred thousand dollars for a single fish but rather that they are willing to take a seventy thousand dollar loss on a single fish that is extraordinary how can you deliberately cost yourself money like that and do it over and over again through these winter months Well, the wholesalers will tell you they oftentimes will deliberately lose money the first six months out of the year and then make it back the next year, the next part of the year. And the reason they do that is so that the restaurants that need this tuna will be able to stay in business. They can't afford to close down for six months out of the year and wait around until the tuna gets less expensive. They need the tuna right away. And so they cooperate with one another. The wholesalers are willing to take a loss. So not only so that they can keep the restaurants open, but also so that the restaurants will be open next year so they can come back and buy more tuna in the winter months and in the summer months and et cetera, et cetera, the whole thing stays alive because the individual partakers in this economy see themselves as more than simply businessmen or as single cogs in this in this entire economy as it were. They see themselves as a partaker in the whole, that when their partners in this industry benefit, they themselves benefit. And it's in their own long-term interest, maybe not short-term interest, but certainly in the long-term interest. It's in their interest to lift these ones up and give them a break so that they in turn will be able to support their industry. And everybody keeps things going. It's not a a six-month plan or a 12-month plan. It's a 20-year plan. It's a 50-year plan. It's investing in an entire system so that it can perpetuate itself generation after generation. It's a different way of looking at business and and maybe as capitalistic as I am, as American as I am, maybe when you think about this a little bit. Now of course this gives me an opportunity to talk about the Lord's Church, which is one of my very favorite topics, because this is a misconception that a lot of Christians hold, I believe, and an opportunity for, for growth for a lot of Christians, certainly an opportunity that I have taken advantage of over the last few years. It's it's not so much a matter of am I a Christian and am I going to heaven and am I forgiven of my sins and, and that's it. And I just so happen to share a building and share a preacher with, with a bunch of other Christians who have also been bought by the blood of Christ and, and uh, they put money in the same plate that I do and they break off a piece of bread from the same piece of bread that I break off of. And things of that nature. It's It's more than that. We are part of a body. We are connected in Jesus Christ. It's great to have Christian brethren who will rejoice with us when we rejoice and weep with us when we weep. Romans 12 verse 15 tells us that. That's a tremendous blessing in Jesus Christ. But that does not touch the hem of the garment of what we're all about. It's not simply about being saved. It's not simply about having brothers and sisters in Christ who are there for us when we need them and being there for them when they need us. It's bigger than that. It's being a part of Jesus Christ himself. It's seeing ourselves as a partaker in this global and timeless plan that God has been implementing from the beginning, or at least planning to implement it, and finally implementing it in Jesus Christ. Paul writes about this in Ephesians chapter 3, calling this the, the mystery that God had been administering from ages. Verse number 7, to bring to light what the, is the administration of the mystery, uh, Ephesians 3 verse 7, uh, for which... Uh, for. It, which for ages has been hidden in God, who created all things so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. That was, this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, and we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. This is saying here that we as Christians are part of something bigger than ourselves, or even bigger than a group of people. It's great to have a community of believers. It's great to have people who have your back and, and vice versa. That's a blessing. But we would do well to think of ourselves in bigger terms than that. The body of Christ, this is what the church is. We stand for him. And the things that we do glorify him or do not glorify him, as the case may be. That's why the, the emphasis is on us as A kingdom of priests. Revelation 1 verse 6 calls us a kingdom of priests. We in that kingdom glorify Jesus Christ. It's not just that we are providing an advantageous situation for us, for our children, for our friends. We are connected to Jesus. And the more we think about the body in those terms, I think the more connected we're going to be to God's eternal plan for us, God's purpose for us as a community of believers and for us as individuals. It's not just about whether I get what I want or I get what I need in the short term or the long term. It's about finding ways to bring glory to Jesus and encouraging other people to do the same. That's the Jesus economy, if you will. Anyway, that's what I've been reading. This is what I've been hearing. Well, the new trend, and I maybe used the wrong choice of words, is to take the greatest men, yet they typically are men, in our history, white men if you can manage it, and drag them through the mud. Find all kinds of horrible things, find all kinds of, of... uh, sins and depravity and, and ugliness and such, and put it on the front page so that we will quit lionizing these men, quit putting them up on pedestals, and I mean literally on pedestals, uh, deface all their statues, break down all their uh, all their monuments and such, take them out of the history books, whether we're talking about Robert E. Lee or talking about George Washington or Christopher Columbus, on and on we can go. Turns out all of these people had troubled pasts. They did things that we object to and and that we should object to. They, they made mistakes. They had poor value system, especially as my, measured by modern standards. And we criticize them for that, and rightfully so. And apparently the, the implication is that if somebody is flawed, if somebody uh, was wrong about some particular issue, especially a, a popular political hot button of the day, then they can't be a hero anymore. We, we can't look to them and, and admire them anymore. We can't talk about their, their successes. We can't sing their praises anymore. And it's getting to be a little more complicated now because the, uh, the victim du jour is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And maybe you've heard about this recently, that there have been some declassified FBI files, apparently, and they uh, are supposedly giving this record of, of philandering and womanizing and drunkenness and even the approval of, of examples of rape, participation in sex orgies, and, and all kinds of just ugly, ugly kind of things. And now we have to wonder, okay, if we're going to be dragging Robert E. Lee through the mud because supposedly he wasn't against slavery, or Thomas Jefferson, or whoever you also want to talk about, because of his, the ugliness in his past, the skeletons in his closet, don't we have to have the same kind of attitude toward Martin Luther King? Are we going to be consistent or not in this? And I think we should be consistent. And here's the position that I take. And by the way, you've noticed probably that I've used a lot of words like supposedly and alleged and, and the like describing these, these FBI files, these stories about Dr. King, giving the impression that I haven't really done my research. The reason is I haven't done my research. I haven't at all. I have not dug into this. I haven't read the files. I'm not going to read the files. I don't know whether these things are true because I don't care whether they're true. I really, really don't. Dr. King will, will stand or fall before the Lord. He I'm not his judge. Uh, I'm not going to be his judge or anybody else's judge. I, I oppose sin. I oppose the practice of sin regardless of who's doing it, Dr. King or anybody else. And God will judge such things. He'll judge me as well. But it's not necessary in my mind for a hero of mine, and Dr. King is a hero of mine, it's not necessary for them to be perfect, and it's a good thing because I would rapidly run out of heroes and and potential heroes if my heroes had to be perfect. And we don't we don't take that kind of attitude in other contexts, you know. I grew up in the Be Like Mike generation when Air Jordans were, were first on the and everybody needed to buy Air Jordans so they could be like Mike. What does that mean? Does that mean that you start smoking cigars and and? gambling and losing lots of money on the golf course. No, be like mine means if you wear Air Jordans, you're going to become a great basketball player. At least that was the implication, it seems like, which seems kind of silly in, in retrospect. But nevertheless, we were celebrating his, his greatness in athletics and basketball. Nothing wrong with that. It's, it's good for us to be able to look to people who are excellent in their field and celebrate that and admire that and to a certain degree as we can emulate that. That's a good thing. It doesn't speak to the character flaws behind the hero or the would-be hero. I think we can be completely and totally consistent with that. And we can use a Bible pattern to do exactly that. Hebrews chapter 11 is, of course, the hall of fame, you might say, of, of heroes of faith. And it's full of flawed characters. You know, uh, Noah was a drunk. Abraham was a liar. Isaac doubted the promise of God. Jacob pulled all kinds of shenanigans in his life. Moses uh, was angry, struck the rock when he was supposed to speak to it. And here toward the end, uh, Rahab is mentioned. We know about Rahab's history. We assume that she corrected her lifestyle. Who knows? Gideon is mentioned here. We know about Gideon's great victory with the, with the Battle of the 300, but Gideon had his problems as well. He certainly had his weaknesses of faith, he his challenges. David is as famous for his failures as he is for his successes. But we still celebrate these great heroes. We're not talking about whether they're going to heaven or not. That's God's business. God will take care of that. What we are talking about in Hebrews chapter 11 is these people, men and women, acted in faith, and they encourage us to do the same kind of thing. They build us up. They give us an example to follow after. And that's all it is. We don't have to determine whether it was appropriate for Esther to marry King Ahasuerus, for instance. That's not the point of the book of Esther. The book of Esther is given to us so that we can see that ordinary people can accomplish extraordinary things if they put themselves in the hand of God. And and so many other examples from the Bible and from our own lives we could talk about. If you want a perfect example, if you want a perfect hero, that you have to go to Jesus Christ. He's the only perfect one, therefore he's the only perfect hero. You can follow after his example, absolutely. But even in the spiritual realm, you can find spiritual heroes, Find people who did as, as Paul suggested. The imitators to me is I imitate Christ, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. We can do that, and we can be those heroes to other people. We talked about perfection in the, in the earlier segment. Nothing wrong with striving for, for perfection. We need to strive for perfection. But if we don't get there, if we are not actually perfect, that doesn't mean our life is a waste. And if we see a brother or sister in Christ who's striving to serve God and he gets it wrong from time to time, his life isn't a waste either. He can still be a hero to us, to his children, to his neighbors. Not because he was perfect, but because he was saved by the blood of Jesus Christ and motivated to serve him as best he could. And Maybe he gets it right sometimes, maybe he gets it wrong sometimes. But we can look at the good aspects of his character or her character. And emulate those. Follow them as they follow Jesus Christ. And help them through the weak spots as we expect and hope they're going to help us through our weak spots as well. Let's quit trying to criticize people for not being perfect. I don't care whether Dr. King is perfect. I don't care whether Michael Jordan is perfect. I don't care whether anybody is perfect. I have one perfect person in my life. That's all that I need. And if I can follow after his lead... And become a little bit more perfect myself. And maybe even serve as an example of somebody else who also is striving to be perfect. Surely that's all the the hero that we need in this life. Anyway, that's what I've been hearing. If you choose to go your way at this point, I hope what you've heard has been instructive, helpful, and most of all, faithful to God's word. Please don't forget to like, rate, share, subscribe, and follow. But. If you have a few more minutes, I would like to share with you a wholesome way to entertain yourself in Satan's world, and perhaps pick up a spiritual point or two in the process. This is what I've been playing. So let's say we have made a complete and total mess of this earth. Let's just say. Whether it's an ecological disaster, overpopulation... Pollution, stripping us of our natural resources, whatever the particular disaster in question may be, depending on the sci-fi genre you're looking at, it, it may vary a little bit. But the bottom line is we can't stay here anymore. It's it's not appropriate for us to try to stick it out. We have to quit on good old planet Earth and we're gonna go find someplace else. So we're going to reworld things. That's what the name of the game is. Reworld. We're going to go someplace else and we're going to hopefully make a better go of it in New Dallas or New Berlin, or New Ankara, or New Caracas, whatever the particular city is that we happen to be building, we're going to do a a better job the second time around maybe than we did the the first time. This is a very common uh, conceit in board games, in sci-fi in general. Uh, There's any number of TV shows or movies and such that would fit this basic theme that we're looking at. And there are all kinds of political ramifications, such that I don't care to get into in this stage. This is not uh, the point of this particular uh, broadcast. The point here is to indicate to you that ReWorld is a lot of fun, regardless of your politics. That you uh, there's a lot of very interesting choices. It's it's good two, three, or four players. It's it's a very enjoyable next step game, you might say. Not necessarily for novices, but if you have played Ticket to Ride and Seven Wonders and games like that and you want to take it to the next step, ReWorld might be an interesting one to track down if you uh, if you can. And it calls to my mind the idea of when it's time to call it quits with Planet Earth. I, I am a, a conservationist by nature. I, I don't like throwing things out. I have a stack of pieces of paper that were printed on one side in my office that I don't want to throw away because they're perfectly good on the blank side and so I'll just save them for, for scrap. That's the way I am. That's the way I think about things. I don't like trashing things. I don't like giving up on things. I want to save them. I want to fix them. And I want to fix planet Earth. I want to fix the problems that are here. I'm all in favor of addressing issues with regard to to pollution and whatnot, those kind of things. But I'm also aware as a citizen of heaven here in Satan's Earth that there is a much greater pollution that is going on. It's not simply a matter of the world is ugly or the world is dirty or the world is noisy or messy. The world is sinful. That's the bottom line. That's the real pollution that's going on in planet Earth. It's not about litter. It's not about pollution. It's not about smokestacks and industry. It's about sin. It's about the devil. And it has been from the beginning. And the bottom line is there's no fixing it. I don't want to sound overly dramatic or overly negative about this, but if you have some kind of hope, and a lot of people do, that we can somehow create a reality here on planet Earth that is heaven-like. And we use the word heaven lots of times for earthly things. We need to quit that. That's not a good thing. There's nothing heavenly here on Earth except for spiritual things that give us a foretaste of real heavenly things. Uh, There's no heavenly pecan pie. There's no heavenly television show or whatever it happens to be this world is sinful and there is no fixing it and the sooner we come to grips with this the better I'm not suggesting that we can't make the most of it that we can't make a good go of it for our three score and ten or four score years I think we should, I think we can we can make a difference, we can be salt in the earth and light in the world, Uh, absolutely we should be doing that with whatever time God gives us here It's poor stewardship for us to not do that. It's not right for us to just hole up on a mountaintop somewhere and wait for the end. God wants us to make a difference as much as we can. But we accept our limitations. We accept the world's limitations. The world is ugly, the world is sinful, and it's going to stay that way. And I emphasize the negative here because of the nature of this podcast. I entitled it The Citizen of Heaven for a reason. We need to emphasize as Christians that the sense of separation, the sense of isolation, the sense of not belonging in this earth is real and we need to feel that. That is an indication that we have a proper sense of identity and we have a proper appreciation for what the world is like. This world is not our home. We are just passing through, as we oftentimes sing the old uh, standby from the great radio gospel era. This is not our home as Philippians chapter 3 tells us for our citizenship is in heaven verse 20 from which we also we eagerly wait for a savior the lord jesus christ who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself this is what jesus is working in us he is transforming us gradually preparing us for this utter and complete transformation that's going to take place after this life is over they cannot possibly take place here on earth we're, we're making progress we're making strides We've been talking about perfection this uh, this week in the podcast, and, and we're striving toward that. Hopefully, we're getting better at that. But we realize perfection has no place in this earth. There's nothing perfect about this, not since the fall. We're waiting for perfection. We're aiming for perfection after this life is over. And I greatly fear that, especially in a relatively prosperous, a relatively safe community in this earth, in this world, like 21st century United States of America, that it becomes very easy for Christians to lose their way. For us to become so comfortable and so content in reasonably safe, reasonably comfortable surroundings that we forget where we really belong. We forget where our home is. We forget that in a very real sense, we are prisoners here. We are trapped. We are in jail. We are in prison here on earth. And all we can think about far too often is how to make our pillow fluffier or our bed softer or our jailer kinder or our view better or our neighbors quieter. Instead of dreaming every moment of every day about the time when we are going to get out of here and go home. That is how we live our life here on earth. We don't ignore the realities of earth and we do have obligations here. Absolutely. But these are distractions, temporary obligations of time and space that we get through as quickly as possible so we can get back to the basic notion of going home to be with God, to be with Jesus, to be with our spiritual family for all of eternity. That's what this is all about. And if being comfortable here on earth is keeping us away from that vision, if it's dampening somehow our view of heaven, then let's make our life less comfortable. Jesus mentioned that any number of times about how he himself was, was homeless. Foxes have have holes and birds of the air have nests, but some man has not where to lay his head. That The idea of living without, living an uncomfortable life, is maybe not noble in and of itself. We're not suggesting you're a better person if you deprive yourself of the comforts of this life. Ecclesiastes talks a lot about how we should enjoy life as we can with whatever opportunities God may give us in this life. But never at any point do we take our eyes off of heaven. That's what it's all about. We are citizens of heaven. We do look for that perfect reality that's waiting for us after this life is over and you're never going to find it here. We need to quit trying to look for it. It's not here. Be salt in the earth. Be light in the world. Absolutely. As much as you can. But as you continue to fail and you will continue to fail, to make a perfect life here. Just use that failure as one more reminder that you're not going to be here forever. You're going home one day. Anyway, that's what I've been playing. Thank you for listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. If you found your time here well spent, I have a few requests of you. First, please pray for the work we're doing here. We need more Citizens of Heaven, and our hope here is to be a part of making that happen. Please subscribe to this podcast, whether it through iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, other podcast providers, or any combination of the above. Share with your friends via social media. The more word of mouth we can get going, the better. Please feel free to reach out to me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. You can find me on Facebook through my pages, 20 pages a week, The Preacher, The Final Word, and Citizen of Heaven. Or through my website, halhammons.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.